the gentleman who spoke eloquently before was a tremendous setup for exactly what we're going to look at tonight. And there's so much that could be said uh, in studying the deity of Christ. I have a little book in front of me. It will look like I'm reading from because I am, but I did write it. So it's not plagiarism when I read from it. But it's called Many Infallible Proofs, The Overwhelming Evidence Concerning Christ. We're going to look at one aspect of that, and that's this. You, you see from religions all over the world the necessity in those religions to say something good about Jesus and to identify Jesus as a good teacher and a good example. Uh, you, you can see if you go to the Baha'i Temple near where I live, and they have a whole section on Jesus and what a wonderful moral example he was. When Mormonism was founded, and they were very specific that Jesus was not God, except in the sense that all men can be gods. And, um, but they still would refer to themselves as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because they wanted to identify with Jesus Christ. And you see this in religious groups and settings all over the world, and they feel this great need to identify with Jesus as a great man. So I want to address this tonight. Is it possible to consider Jesus to be a great man? And in doing that, I want to address the very claims that Jesus made about himself. Is it possible that a great man said these things about himself? Okay. Start with, he claimed, and I, I, for time's sake, I'm going to read the scriptures rather than turn to everything but he claimed in Mark 14, verse 61, 62, he claimed to be the Christ. But he held his peace and answered nothing. And the high priest asked him, said to him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. If I came into this assembly tonight and said, by the way, one day you'll see me sitting on the right hand of God. Would you say, oh, what a wonderful teacher. I said, one day you'll see me coming in the clouds of heaven. This is not the kind of thing that a great teacher says about himself unless he's God. And when you hear these kind of claims... There are three real possibilities. One is the person talking to you is a con artist, a liar, and trying to deceive you for their own benefit. Or is a lunatic and does not have a sense of reality. Or it has to be the Lord himself. A good man does not say those kind of things. I'm kind of familiar with both the the uh, con men and the lunatics, I pastored in inner city Chicago for 11 years. It's an amazing experience. Unlike previous pastorates, people stop by the church just to talk every day. And I met some very, very interesting people. And we had some very, very interesting people who attended services. Uh, Jesus himself came three times. God the Father twice, 
This actually happened, next event happened before I was pastor, but I had it described to me by several people. Zeus, the king of the gods, came one time and demanded to take over the service. And there was a man in the church who was a weightlifter. He'd won weightlifting competitions, and he actually wrestled Zeus to the ground and carried him out, which I said is very, very impressive. That should be on your resume, your list of accomplishments. Took Zeus on one-on-one and, and beat him. So we really met our share of these folks. And then con artists, con artists who came along, you be amazed number of people who showed up on Sunday morning saying God had led them to come speak at our church that day. And it was, we did not allow that. We said, we'd have to know you. We'd have to invite you. And they said, but God told me. And in years back, when I was president of a Bible college in Florida, we had a fellow who showed up one night. We had a 10-story building. And the first floor was classrooms, had a basement that was a snack shop. And after the services, a lot of young people being a snack shop. And then at the girls' dorm was the second, third, and fourth floor. And uh, guys showed up. First floor, lobby plopped on the couch, announced that the pastor of the church had given the building to him. And he was now his, and he was in charge of it. And uh, so they called me, and I went over there and talked to him. He said, well, you don't know. You weren't there when the pastor gave it to me. I said, well, he kind of asked me to watch over the college for him. I'm pretty sure he would have mentioned that, you know, if he'd done that. He said, well, I'm not going anywhere. So we called the police. Police came in and told him to get up. He said, I can't get up. And a policeman said, why not? He said, can't you see them? And he said, no. What? He said, well, there are four spirits sitting on top of me, and they won't let me up. And he gave the names for each of the four. And the policeman addressed the first name and said, would you mind getting up, please, so this man can get up? (laughs) Oh, thank you very much. And then he addressed the second name and said, would you mind getting up, the third and the fourth? And after the policeman had thanked all four of them for getting up, he said, okay, you can get up now. And then they helped him get up. Anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm used to dealing with these aspects of things. But I'm telling you, a person that says the kind of things that Jesus did is not a good man. He claimed to be equal with God the Father in Luke 5, or John 5. Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him. Because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. They understood the meaning of that, if, if other folks don't. I know modernist Christianity likes to say they're worshipers of Jesus, who is the greatest moral example ever, and the finest teacher But does a great teacher who's just a man make himself equal with God? In John 10, I and my Father are one. If somebody came into your church Sunday morning and was beginning to deliver the sermon, said, I want you to understand this. The Father and I, we're one. Would you be in awe and say, what a great teacher. What a great example. What a great message, yeah. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I done. I have showed you for my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because thou being a man, makest thyself God. It was very clear to the audience 
what he was saying, what he was addressing. Then he called himself I am, which means a self-existent one. This is a title for the eternal God. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast not, and thou hast seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Before Abraham was, I am. If I was preaching in your service Sunday morning, and a lot of times people say, well, Tell the folks a little bit about yourself before you serve. I'm preaching in your service, and um, I can say, Well, I said, I go back to before the time of Abraham. Oh, man, that's wonderful. We have a speaker here that has that kind of experience and depth and wisdom. No, you would look at me and say I was crazy. And if I wasn't God, the eternal God, I would be. And the Jews understood exactly. Then they took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. They understood what that claim meant. It is not the claim of a great example or a good teacher. Then he claimed he was due the same honor that God the Father is due. How about that? If I was preaching for you this Sunday and came and said, by the way, I want you folks to treat me the same way you treat God. Because I'm due all the respect that God is due. I wonder what kind of response I would get. They'd say, oh, this is wonderful. Can you come back again next Sunday? No. <laughs> That all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that knoweth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life. And thou shalt not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. What kind of man makes those kind of claims? I want to suggest to you, as you look at the claims of Jesus, you might conclude this was a liar. But a lot of folks are uncomfortable with that. The homosexual movement at times carries banners that says, let him come again, we'll kill him like we did the first time. But not many folks will do that. Satanist movement will make statements like that. But most folks want to be seen as on the right side of Jesus. His real example has impacted so many. He is a messenger of peace and makes peace possible among people who you would not have ever thought could have had peace. And uh, his, his reputation and his influence and his impact, most people, as you heard tonight, want to be seen on the good side of Jesus. But how can a man say what he said and be a good man? You could call him a liar. You could call him a lunatic. You can fall at his feet and worship him as the Lord. But call him a good man and a good teacher isn't really an option. Jesus claimed that belief in him was equal to belief in God the Father. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. If your favorite preacher started out a sermon by saying that believing in him was like believing in God, would he still be your favorite preacher? It's not the claim of a good man. It would sound more like a person whose ego had dr driven him to insanity or a person who was organically insane. Or, and there have been a lot of examples of this, the con artist who wants to be worshipped as God and thinks you're an easy mark 
that can be fooled. But it doesn't sound like a good man. He claimed his words were eternal. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. What kind of a claim is that? Man, I, I still remember the first time I saw one of my books in a used bookstore. Someone actually sold one of my books. They weren't going to hang on to it forever. This just, just was horrifying, just, just humiliating. And I have no idea who, who had the book. But there's a possibility my words aren't going to last forever. But Jesus promised his words would last forever. Who can make that kind of promise? He claimed to be able to forgive sins. That's a pretty big statement. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. I'm reading from Mark 2. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why dost this man thus speak blasphemy? They understood it was blasphemy to claim that you could forgive sins. You were putting yourself in the place of God. Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said to them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Luke 7, And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. This is a divine prerogative. It's not a claim a good teacher can make. He claimed to be sinlessly perfect. How's that for one? He not only claimed it, he claimed it in front of an audience that were his bitter critics. Which of you can convinceth me of sin? If I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He challenged an audience of his critics to list a sin he'd committed. I don't want to challenge an audience of my friends whether or not they can list a sin that I've committed. I, I certainly want to fill the room with my critics and challenge them, but he could do that. And no one was able to convict him of a sin. That alone is a proof of deity. Do you know anybody that would like to put themselves in that position to be scrutinized that way? to be examined like that? But Jesus could. And, uh, I mean, there it is. And, and so folks have responded as well. You know, he's this great moral teacher. How could he be saying the things that he says? Say, well, then maybe we'd better label him as a lunatic. How do you explain his positive influence on the history of the world? I've known a few lunatics but they don't generate great followings. So he could be a fraud. There's some frauds that have pretty much developed significant followings, created all kinds of religions. But were any of them able to make the impact that Jesus made, testifying to the fact that God loved all men and it provided salvation for all men. In fact, many of the religions that were once of great significance have come and gone. Our off times, their significance is not found in the most noble 
followers of the religion, but their significance and influence is found in the worst followers of their religion. I know that this people say, well, that's Christianity too. But let me say, you have to distinguish between Bible-believing Christianity and uh, modernist Christianity or Catholic Christianity. The imam who spoke yesterday made the case from studying the writings of Christians that Christians do not have an authoritative Bible. He is right about the majority of people who call themselves Christian. They do not have an authoritative Bible. That is their fault. They could have had one, didn't want one. They did not want to have a Bible that they were obligated to follow all the time. So he's right. A majority of Christians don't have an authoritative Bible. But not because there isn't one available. Or often when people are discussing Christianity and they talk about what's the followers of Christianity who create so many problems, often they're talking about Roman Catholicism. I thought it was interesting. I've talked for years about the testimony of Geronimo, the famous Indian warrior who got saved towards the end of his life. And uh, I, I became aware of that. I was visiting in the fort in St. Augustine, Florida, where he was held as a prisoner. And they had a flyer. He became someone, he, you know, had been famous for his, his killings. And his great fame was his ability to slip up behind somebody with a knife and slit their throat before they knew anything was happening. And as a prisoner, he became such a model prisoner, they allowed him to leave on Saturdays and come back on Monday. And he would leave every weekend and go to a church and give his testimony about getting saved. And they had a flyer there from one of those services where, come tomorrow, you know, come this Sunday, hear Geronimo's testimony. Well, then I heard he dictated an autobiography. And so I found it on the internet and I ordered it. Last chapter is telling about his fights and adventures, et cetera, et cetera. And the last chapter is about him becoming a Christian. And he says he became a Christian because of what he saw as a wonderful testimony in the life of Christians. But he goes on to say, he wanted to understand, he was not talking about the Rome, what he called the Roman Christians. He said they didn't have any testimony like that at all. He's talking about the real Christians. I'm glad he got it. I'm glad he was able to distinguish and make the difference. And he said it was Roman Christians that had killed his family that started him on the warpath uh, that he never got over. But he distinguished between that and real Christians. How do you explain the positive influence of Christianity if he was a fraud? How do you explain his resurrection? The evidence for his resurrection is overwhelming. Uh, To start with, All of his enemies and critics had the greatest reason to simply produce his body and end Christianity. For 30 years, the Jews persecuted Christianity. They forbid the apostles to mention the resurrection. They punished them. But if they had the body of Jesus, they could have solved that problem really easy. Bring it out. Case closed. Game over. No Christianity. Christianity is based on the resurrection of Christ. If you can produce the body, Christianity's finished. For 300 years, the Roman Empire tried to destroy Christianity. Ten major persecutions. 
in which millions of people were killed. The persecutions were all a little different in their details. Sometimes they were just trying to kill preachers. Sometimes they're focusing on burning church buildings. Every persecution, they're burning every copy of the scripture they can find, which is probably what happened to all the originals. But God had given so many copies that that didn't destroy Christianity. But in some of the persecutions, it was to kill every Christian. One of the Roman emperors, Diocletian, they, they would design their tombs before they died, and they list their accomplishments on their tombs, and he wanted it put on his tomb that he had exterminated Christianity from the face of the earth because he thought he had. Might have been a little premature in that. But the Roman Empire, 300 years, 10 persecutions, wanting to destroy Christianity because Christianity defied the power of the empire because it said there was something greater. Why didn't he bring out the body? Here it is. You know why they didn't? They couldn't. People say, oh, the disciples, they stole the body, they hid it, they were frauds and liars. But every one of them except John died for their testimony of the resurrection, being given opportunities to take it back, and they wouldn't take it back. And, and, and con artists do not make good martyrs. In fact, at one point, these had been pretty fearful men. Only Peter followed him to the trial. And something happened to him. Now they're dying for their testimony of resurrection, which means they not only become brave men, they were absolutely convinced of the truth of what they were dying for. So what happened? They saw resurrected Jesus. And the one who was not martyred was John, and he was dipped into boiling oil three times. And each time he was dangled over the boiling oil and given a chance to deny the resurrection of Jesus, and he wouldn't. Dipped in the boiling oil, can you imagine what that did from head to toe and the pain and the agony? And then they're hanging him over it again and giving him another chance to deny the resurrection. According to early records of church history, this scarred him from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. It blinded him. And the second time, he refuses to deny the resurrection. And the third time, he refuses to deny the resurrection. I'm pretty sure he'd seen the resurrected Lord in terms of that. (laughs) Then after that, to Paul. I mean, he wasn't called Paul then. He's Saul of Tarsus. He is such an opponent of Christianity, so determined to destroy Christianity, to kill innocent Christians, that he describes himself as the chiefest of sinners till he sees a resurrected Christ and hears from the resurrected Christ. How do you explain the transformation of Saul? Well, it's just not comfortable calling Jesus a lunatic It's just not comfortable calling him a fraud. Frauds don't raise from the dead. And it shouldn't be comfortable to call him a great man or a great moral teacher or a great leader because a man who said the kind of things about himself that Jesus said would not be a great man or a great moral teacher. It's really not a logical tenable option 
You could try calling him a lunatic and try and make your case. It would make more sense than calling him a great man. Try calling him a fraud. The world's been full of religious frauds. And people who absolutely made up their stories. It's interesting to me how many of them operated out of the city of Chicago in our country. And pastoring in Chicago, I got sort of intrigued by that. And I started looking up all these cult leaders that had founded movements in Chicago. And their stories. And every one of them ends up getting identified for who they really are and not the story they were telling people. You're not comfortable calling Jesus a fraud. You shouldn't be comfortable calling him a great man. Doesn't make any sense. Only option left is to recognize that he's God in the flesh. Fall at his feet and claim him as Savior. Because that fits with the statements of Christ. Fits with the birth of Christ. It fits with the claims of Christ. It fits with the miracles of Christ. It fits with the resurrection of Christ. It is consistent. And you do not have to be embarrassed at trying to explain away the inconsistencies. Oh my goodness. History of the world has never been touched by anybody in the fashion and the way in which Jesus touched it. And there's one reasonable, rational explanation for all these things. Jesus was God in the flesh, exactly as prophesied in the Old Testament. He paid the penalty for us, as was described so completely in Isaiah chapter 53. Actually, my favorite chapter of the Bible to preach salvation messages on. And that he is exactly who the Old Testament predicted. He's exactly who he claimed he was. He is exactly who the apostles said that he was. He's exactly who Paul, after he became Paul, in his conversion, preached that he was. And exactly who millions of believers have testified to throughout the centuries that he brought peace to their hearts and fulfillment in a way that is beyond even what we can put into words. I understand people say the argument from experience, you can't codify it, you can't put it into writing, you can't make that whole. I I do know that, but I also know what it means to each and every one of us that knows Christ that way. And that you can explain how the Lord touched your life. And glory to God, we do not have to defy any aspect of reason in order to believe that. Good man, not a chance. Lunatic, don't think so. Fraud, the world's full of religious frauds. None of them had an impact like Jesus. The Lord, God in the flesh, you got it. That's the reasonable explanation. God bless you all.